Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Truth and Movies. On today's episode, awards season is well and truly here, and we review two of the frontrunners, Martin McDonough's black comedy Three Billboards Outside Emming, Missouri, and Joe Wright's Winston Churchill biopic Darkest Hour. And speaking of awards, we're flashing back to 1996 for Francis McDormand's Oscar-winning turn in the Coen Brothers classic, Fargo. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, uh, if you're wondering where James is this week, don't worry, he's not regenerated into a northerner after the Christmas episode. This is Michael Eder sitting in, keeping the coast's seat warm and wishing Happy New Year to Little White Lies Grand Fromage, David Jenkins. Hey. And Beth Webb, returning guest. Hello. 2018 already, we're getting into awards season. We had the BAFTA nominations this week and the Golden Globes awards given out over the weekend. David, any takes on that? I think you're in that sort of relentless churn of kind of awards fodder where where you're either reacting to awards being given or nominations being given or potential nominations being given or potential awards being Mm -hmm. given. So that all kind of keeps going until the end of the Oscars, which, what is it, like the end of March? It goes on for a long time. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) forever in, uh, in, in reality. But yeah, you know, the BAFTAs was kind of... I would say disappointing, but that would infer that I had some kind of <laughs> like um, investment in the idea that they might do something good. From my perspective, it seemed very sad that the selection of uh, nominees this year was seemed very kind of conservative and well worn, and mm-hmm. it is an identity that's kind of that feels quite kind of conservative and unconnected to conversations and. Uh, things that are happening in the in the film world which are maybe a little bit more interesting and uh, yeah sad uh, that Greta Gerwig yeah. uh, has had no awards love so well, far as far, for, far as the BAFTAs are concerned mm. The Shape of Water Guillermo del Toro's film was leading the pack 12 nominations and then the two that we're talking today both got nine nominations each Starkest Hour and Three Billboards but then these critical favourites festival favourites like Lady Bird and then genre films like Get Out seem to be relegated little to screenplay or single acting nominations. It's sad that those kind of films, like, you know, it's really, really upsetting that Get Out, which was like a massive commercial success, is being kind of overlooked because, you know, it's such a kind of interesting, spiky choice for films. Well, this uh, is it. And then when you think about Little White Lies, Call Me By Your Name was, you know, the film of the year, and you just think, am I living in this echo chamber where... Get Out and Call Me By Your Name. But then, you, yeah, you look at things like box office figures, you look at how well Lady Bird did critically and how well it did on, you know, if you're looking at Metacritic scores as well, and then you come to the BAFTAs and nothing. It's just this, this kind of eerie silence as things like Darks Down and Three Billboards kind of take. And I haven't seen Shape of Water yet. I know you're, you're vouching for it hugely. I do and for it, I need yeah. to give it a chance, but I was very... If I could do, like, the Marge Simpson grumble very well, I, I would about the shape of the nominations this year so far and the wins that came through the Golden Globes weren't as fun as I was expecting. I think if you look at the Biffers as well, like the calibre of films mm-hmm. that came through there, you've got Lady Macbeth, you've got God's Own Country, you know, such interesting and unique stories to tell and they've been told so well and not really anywhere to be seen. Mm. And well, one film I know you like, Beth, was um, I'm Not a Witch, which got a single nomination for Outstanding Debut for the writer-director and then the producer. Yeah, I'll be backing that fully. I mean, I was singing its praises on here Mm -hmm. the last episode I was on and would love to see that happen. You know, Rangana Nyoni won Best Director at the Biffers and I hope this gives her a career the real boost that it needs, really. Hopefully. One interesting thing I saw is the actor and sometime director Paddy Considine. Did you guys see this? This was on yes. Instagram yesterday, yeah. Yeah, he's sort of an- announced that he's going to no longer be uh, directing movies because um, it's 
too much effort and it's not worth worthwhile for him if he's playing to empty houses even though the film isn't out for two months yet and uh yeah uh, i think give people give people the chance maybe to exactly. make up their minds before he mm-hmm. takes to instagram rants i haven't seen it i've heard that it's fine i think it's very much a, a film for the public and not the critics as such i think commercially it might do quite well and people love patty constantine i love patty constantine mm-hmm. you know he's got it's a true. strong following i think don't you know Hang up your hat too. It's true. I mean, you don't you don't want to have to be like you know, coming back with your tail between your legs when the film does well commercially. And you, but that film's Journeyman, and it's due out later this year. And have you reviewed it? Yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's a flawed film, but it's it's certainly not a bad one, and certainly not a film that I would you know <laughs> stake my entire directorial career on and <laughs> and think yeah, this is it. If people aren't going to see this, I'm done. I mean, and he's still one of the. You know the best actors of his generation. Exactly. You know, the death of Stalin just last year. He was fantastic in those opening scenes. He was the and, best thing in that. <laughs> you know, really hope this isn't the time for him to to back away. No. I mean, hopefully he'll do something else with Shane Meadows because I mean, that, as a partnership, they're so so oh, great. Because they did Scorsese, Madonna Scorsese, and Dead Man's Shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the the sort of Midlands De Niro Scorsese. That's one way of putting yeah. it. You've got to so. reunite them. So, the listeners, you can let us know uh, what you think of the awards and if there are any snubs that you want pointed out at uh, truth and movies tcolunder.com or little white lies lw lies on twitter there's also uh, a comments page on the website lwlies.com slash podcast speaking of films perhaps not getting the attention they deserve on release uh, we have this email from uh, yerowin hoban for film club i'd like to suggest jackie brown a beautiful film that turned 20 just this Christmas. I regard this as an anomaly in Quentin Tarantino's body of work, as there's a vulnerability and a sense of romance that cannot be found in any of his other films. Uh, one of his finest movies. Would love to hear your take on it. Are we fans around the table, guys? Oh, big time. I haven't seen it. Oh, oh really? <laughs> so off the back of that recommendation, I will. <laughs> so, I, yeah, no, I can't weigh in, unfortunately. Well, I think I think I may have mentioned recently that my kind of big critical turnaround point ever was on the film Death Proof by Tarantino oh, yes, yeah. which is now probably my favourite of his films but I think it, you know Jackie Brown is like probably a, a close second you know I think all the rest there is a certain kind of juvenilia element to them now like mm. even even Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs whereas I think that Jackie Brown is probably the the only film he's made by a, a certified adult <laughs> yeah, an adult person. So. It still uh, seems like his most mature work, and not just because of the maturity of the actors involved. It's middle-aged actors who aren't cool in the sort of traditional Tarantino sense. They may strut and spout one-liners, but they're pretty, you know, grotesque or ugly or sort of dowdy figures at times. Robert Forster, in particular, is just such a, a straight-up guy, uh, and it's heartwarming for that. Well, that's Jackie Brown, maybe one for a future film club. But for now, let's talk about this week's new releases and starting with Three Billboards. Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, starring Frances McDormand as Mildred Hayes, a woman who takes matters into her own hands after her daughter's murder remains unsolved, much to the chagrin of the local coppers. In this clip, Mildred confronts the chief of police, played by Woody Harrelson, with some unorthodox crime-fighting methods. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's... Definitely civil rights laws prevents that. So this is the new film from Martin McDonough, whose first film was in Bruges, quite a cult favourite, and then maybe strayed a little bit off the path with Seven Psychopaths afterwards. Without meaning to sound unpopular, I would probably take Seven Psychopaths over in Bruges. Interesting. I know, I know. Why would you do that? Well, a I, casual I, review there? I, I think I probably like the fact that Seven Psychopaths is something of a, of a kind of overreaching folly. Mm-hmm. Um, since seeing it, 
at the cinema when it came out. I haven't seen it since. And, I, you know, maybe I don't really have the inclination to see it again. But I, I do have maybe fonder memories of it than like in Bruges was just like kind of for me a bit of a shrug. You know, I didn't find much sort of depth to it. But like with Seven Psychopaths, there was a sense that he was kind of pushing mm-hmm. the envelope a little in terms of like narrative and uh, storytelling. And uh, I mean, whether whether he does it well or not, I think is maybe up for debate. And clearly the common sense view on, on this film is that it was a misstep. I don't think many people went to see it, mm-hmm. um, but I really liked it. <laughs> one to revisit perhaps. Yeah, I think, I think it is actually one that might in like 30 years time get re-released on some like boutique Blu-ray label okay. and have have someone write a really good like booklet essay for it. Mm-hmm. Are you going to write that essay? Yeah, I, in, in 2054, if, if Arrow Films want me to do that essay, I'm up for it. <laughs> but Three Billboards, uh, he reunites with a couple of members of the cast of Seven Psychopaths, two of the psychopaths in, in fact, um, Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson and also Abby Cornish. But his lead is Francis McDormand, a first-time collaborator uh, of his. And David, you wrote the review for The White Lies for this one. Uh, how did it land with you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We chose to put this film on the cover of, of the issue and we hadn't actually seen it yet because it had previewed at the Venice Film Festival and we hadn't really attended that year. And it had got this kind of groundswell of 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 appreciation from critics mm. mainly i guess mainly european critics and it just seemed like a, a great choice i mean we love francis mcdormand and he's an interesting director and and so i think it's a, a kind of weird situation when you're going to see a movie that you've already sort of put quite a lot of your mm. chips on creatively yeah you know you're sort of hoping that it's going to meet a certain expectation you you know you're hoping that it's going to be good enough to be able to sort of follow through with this idea that you've already kind of set in motion and i'd seen the trailers and the trailer tees up this idea is that it's a it's a kind of angry woman film it's a revenge film mm. the impression you get is that the film is going to be a kind of david versus goliath kind of thing where you know she takes on the police force with these unorthodox methods but i think the thing i really liked about the film is that it's maybe not that film at all. I mean, it it kind of teases you with that notion of being a kind of, let's take on corruption, let's take on police negligence and um, other kind of deficiencies in that world. But I think it swerves off at the point where it kind of gets to the, where, you know, maybe like the sort of end of where the trailer would be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just swerves off into something different. And it's, it's more about like what corruption means. It's more about like dealing with, the nature of evil and why people take revenge and what actual real world ramifications it has. I've thought about the film a lot since seeing it, mainly because the reaction since that we you know we've run our review and you know this initial kind of burst of positivity there has been a you know something of a quote unquote backlash about mm. certain political elements of the film. Mm. Well, that's something we should pay some respect to in a way. Oh, so absolutely. It, yeah. Backlash is a word that's, that was thrown around when really this is one of those films where it premieres at Venice and then goes to Toronto and it goes a festival run and with every notch in that bedpost more people see it, a broader audience sees it, new critics see it. Mm-hmm. And then when it goes on general release in the States and there are more week, week by week critics seeing it, you just suddenly get this body of opinion where initially what may have seemed like a consensus becomes chipped away or becomes questioned. The sort of the sum of some of these criticisms of the film I suppose we should we could get into that, Beth. Do you... I'm slightly on the other side of the fence there. Yeah, I think in terms of the fact that you know there's this platform set and you've got Sam Rockwell and I love Sam Rockwell. I need to say that first and foremost. So Sam Rockwell plays this. Plays Jason, who is kind of this caricature cop, you know, falling over himself and bumbling around and generally doing a terrible job. But he's widely known throughout the community as a, as a racist and it's kind of insinuated that he's been violent towards mm-hmm. people of colour. And that's when you, you know, you, you wait with bated breath. You know, you think, oh, it's this is happening. You know, we've got a platform here. You know, we've got this huge film with this huge cast and they're going to take this on. They're going to mm-hmm. take on this element. And then he doesn't deliver. I mean, the storytelling is is great. Otherwise, it's a film about pain. It's mm-hmm. about these these people's pains and their suffering. And you really get muddled up in Mildred, you know, Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson's pains, and you you kind of walk around in it. And then I feel like with this area, it was just kind of light social commentary that was never really delivered upon. You know, it's not enough to just point out that this is a a very current issue mm-hmm. and then just move on, sort of thing. It's almost better to not bring it up at all. I feel like McDonough thought that he had to mm-hmm. and then 
that was him kind of dusting the sounds of it almost. That's almost a contextual issue of the film, really. It's not so much the film's fault that it's released in a year where these issues about sort of abuse of power and representation in front of behind the camera are becoming more and more prevalent. I guess so, but then this is, you know, an ongoing issue for decades, mm-hmm. you know? He can't be ignorant towards that at all, I think. I mean, it doesn't need to dominate the film by any means. Mm-hmm. He's not by any means gone out to make a film about that, but I feel like he could have spent a lot more time developing that alongside the other the other storylines. But that's what I find quite fascinating about the film. It is so slippery thematically and narratively. It's, it takes unexpected turns. Characters, even within one scene, may have conflicted intentions and motivations. Even from that clip that, that we just listened to, it sets up this almost antagonistic relationship between Woody Harrelson and Francis McDormand's character. But there's actually a basic human warmth and decency behind all that. Absolutely. And there there is some incredibly satisfying character development. You know, I didn't feel the same about any of those characters going into the film as I did leaving the film. And without spoiling the plot, there's a a key scene between Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson Mm. where attitudes change instantly. Mm. Something happens and Francis McDormand is, is suddenly from one side of the fence to the other and you're there with her, absolutely. But yeah, I think there are some very blind areas to that film. And it's been widely touted that both Frances McDormand and Sam Rockwell are very much in the conversation for winning Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor. Do we think their chances are strong here? Are they they doing good work? I mean, Frances McDormand, I just you know don't think it even needs to be said. Mm. No. I think on that front, though, Rockwell's great in it, but I actually think that the standout supporting turn is was Woody Harrelson mm. as the, the local sheriff. I can't remember what his actual mm. uh, um, title on is. On the billboard it says, how come Chief Willoughby? Chief Willoughby, of course, yeah. yes. It's a really lovely kind of droll and folksy take on sort of local police enforcer and... He kind of bears some. I'm trying to sort of, if I'm umming and ahhing here, it's I'm trying to not, not spoil his kind of arc. But you know, he bears some heavy loads with a real sense of levity and lightness that only I think an, a real comfortable, masterful actor like him could actually get away with. That carries it halfway, and then McDormand just takes it the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see her win. Oscar, I mean, she's won the big three, hasn't she? She's won an Oscar, Tony, and an Emmy, and another Oscar, perhaps. Wouldn't it go amiss? I think for Sam Rockwell, this isn't his Oscar role. I'd like to see him nominated in the future for something better. Mm-hmm. We need Francis McDormand to release a musical album and win the Grammy. So yeah, <laughs> a, a full EGOT. I would listen yeah. to that. She does do like apparently weird experimental theatre in Europe when she's oh. not like working on big movies. So. Is this a Little White Lies maybe it could be a road s- trip? <laughs> yeah, maybe, I'm, maybe. I'm into that. <laughs> um, but that, so that's three billboards. Should we say some, some scores maybe yeah. for, for this? David? Okay, well, as someone who quite likes Seven Psychopaths, I'd say, and, <laughs> and the fact that it got this kind of great reception after uh, Venice and Toronto and whatnot, I, I would give it four. And then, yeah, I would probably say fives for the other two just because... I do yeah, I liked it a lot. I want to see it again, and mm. I think that the the sort of debate that's generated around it is fascinating. And, and and like, whereas I think that it's a film that's really easy to argue both ways on, and I don't buy this idea that kind of ambiguity is a kind of get out clause for directors, mm. and you know it's a way to sort of slip past criticism. Uh, I think that you know ambiguity is the kind of is the meat of movies and, you know, it's the thing that actually makes them interesting and that they're a thing to sort of form opinion around, not to, like, give you an opinion. So, Mm. yeah, liked it. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I went in with a four. I really like Madonna. Perhaps don't share the views of Seven Psychopaths, but I liked Mm. Imbruge. Imbruge I don't think it's aged very well, but it was good fun at the time. He's gone stateside and he's managed to stay afloat, which not many... British directors can necessarily do three and then again a three but I will say one of those is purely McDormand but she absolutely carried that film without that I don't think the film would be even half as good Mm. well I think personally gosh well McDonough has been so strong from his debut short Six Shooter onwards really he made an Oscar winning short before in Bruges so I'd probably three or maybe a four anticipation and yeah watching it first time I saw it was in a room with hardly anyone in but then seeing it with an audience it really is a good audience picture it's no surprise that it won the audience prize at Toronto which is generally a good marker of a an awardsy movie, 12 Years a Slave and Room have won it in the past. So maybe a, a four again there. It's certainly a film that it's challenging in terms of it's not what you expect on a moment-to-moment basis, but it's also challenging, as you say, 
David in the sense that it challenges what you expect from films like that, from movies. You don't you expect them to give you fully formed themes and narrative drives and causes to rally behind, or are you expected to wrestle with a text, with a with a filmmaker, with a performance, with a character, and that's all there in that film. And in retrospect, it's been fascinating to see the response to all this. It's uh, inspired great writing, both on the positive and negative sides during awards season, and also such strong responses from audiences and can't wait to see what the UK thinks. That's probably three or four, probably four. Again, we'll see how it does at the Academy Awards and the BAFTAs, I guess. And that was three billboards, so let's uh, queue up our next awards hopeful, Darkest Hour. Shaking. So are you. You from excitement, I from terror. You've wanted this your entire adult life. No, since the nursery. What do the public want It's me? your own party to whom you'll have to prove yourself. No, I'm getting the job only because the ship is sinking. It's not a gift, it's revenge. Let them see your true qualities, your courage. My poor judgment. Your lack of vanity. Yeah, my iron will. Your sense of humour. Ho, ho, ho. Now go. Go? Be... Be what? Be yourself. Myself. Which self should I be today? Hmm. One should have had power when a young man, when wits were sharp, sinews strong. Oh well, uh, uh, lead on, Macduff. When youth departs, may wisdom prove enough. And so that was Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill having a chat with uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as, as his uh, as his wife. And this is Darkest Hour, uh, the story behind the speech that inspired a nation. But before there's any fighting on the beaches, Winston Churchill must wage a war within the cabinet itself and calm the mutiny brewing within Parliament. So this seems, after three billboards, this seems like a very... Definitely an, an Oscar awards baity film. Do we agree, guys? What do we think? 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, this is a real a real boomer movie, I think. Just very much set up for a certain audience and a certain audience that I imagine are quite prominent on the awards boards as well. And with a, a performance at its centre, Gary Oldman, a career actor of, of great renown who hasn't as yet had Oscar glory, is this going to be his uh, his departed in a way? Do you think, David? Well, you know, if it is, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and get fair play to him and, uh, you know, all that. But uh, it's interesting because we did, um, as a film club recently, we did Leon. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and Gary Oldman in there gives, like, the most cokey, <laughs> maniac performance that you've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I kind of was watching this and... There is elements of that Leon performance here. It's, it is so big over the top. I mean, that's what I mean. Gary Oldman's known for going big on Absolutely. everything, yeah. mm-hmm. and I actually find the films where he's where he's a bit more muted. Like I find watching the the sort of the Christopher Nolan Batman films where he plays Commissioner Gordon really strange because because he, <laughs> he's so just normal in them, yeah. and I'm like. It's like getting the wrong tool for the job there. Mm-hmm. You, know? Mm-hmm. you know, you just want some kind of journeyman character actor in that role rather than like someone like him who could, exactly. you know, who should really be the villain or something. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, this film is, it couldn't be more prestige British biopic <laughs> from from Joe Wright, who is a director who has been around the block many, many times yeah. now. And he almost has started to feel part of the kind of British prestige cinema furniture. And yet I've never seen a film of his that I've truly liked. And that's not to say that I don't think what he does is impressive or he's got a visual eye or something like this. I just, mostly it's the material that he picks that mm-hmm. just doesn't seem to gel with me and, you know, the stories that he chooses to tell. Let's let's run through that. So Atonement is the big one, the big Joe Wright film that mm-hmm. announced him and set him off on his way. Then Pride and Prejudice? I think Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice was first. before. Oh, was yeah. that before? Yeah, right. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice, then this. And, and then Anna Karenina. Then we've had his Anna Karenina. Hannah. And, I mean, Hannah was the one where I thought, oh, this is the film where he's actually kind of thought to hell, I'm going to do something weird and uh, a bit left field. Mm. And even that, didn't, mm. even him attempting to do something that was a bit more kind of zeitgeisty. Yeah. 
fell flat. I mean, the, you know, for me, that film was just about how great Saoirse Ronan is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and a small role for Jessica Barden, who's now in uh, The End of the uh, Effing World on uh, Netflix. And oh, right. Showed up in The Lobster, and it's worth worth going back just for her scene. <laughs> I love Jessica Barden. <laughs> I um, really enjoyed the episode of Black Mirror he did. <laughs> oh, really? Which one was that? This, I forget what it's called, but it was the first episode of the last series where they're rating everyone's um, interactions oh. with... Is that Bryce Dallas Howard? Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, which was the you know the season premiere of the last Black Mirror, and that was great fun. Maybe mm. he should dabble a little bit more in telly and less in drab I films. Just, I think. I mean, you know, this isn't meant to sound like a diss, but I think Joe Wright could definitely, if he had some a really well written TV series and a good budget. Like he, I mean, you were saying we were speaking about this the other day, and you said God, Joe Wright just loves to direct, and he just <laughs> directs the hell out of everything. Like just really directs. Well, that's um, yeah, that's what he does here, isn't it? It's got it's quite a chamber piece in a way. It's lots of conversations in Parliament or in the War Cabinet's offices and so on, and lots of scenes of process of behind the scenes wheeler dealering between. MPs, but then also speech writing for as Winston Churchill creates what will become this great iconic myth making speech. But Joe Wright decides mm-hmm. to throw a camera around and go for these swooping aerial shots of the commons, or there's one point where this film is in, in a way a prequel or a precursor to Dunkirk. But yeah. well, it's like it's like the yin to Dunkirk's yang. Really. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 where Dunkirk avoids all the kind of boring fat blokes pushing little figures across a mat. <laughs> this, is, this film is just that. It's you know? just that. Going back to the directing aspect, it's almost like Danny Boyle had to go at the editing transitions. There's these really strange moments where the calendar pops across the screen and changes <laughs> in a really strange moment where a boy closes his hand into darkness and that's like the transition and you just think, what are you doing? There, there, there is a, the feeling I got from this film is that its makers were either told or believed that the story they were telling was inherently boring and that they had to do something, anything, to make it more exciting. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it's so nakedly obvious that they're doing that it just ruins the whole film. I, I just thought it was bad, bad. Well, it's, it's, it's distracting, isn't it? There's this, yeah. oh, the cinematographer is Bruno Del Bonel, who's done some fantastic work. In fact, Inside Lewin Davis was a film that he shot yeah. for the Coen brothers. I mean, he, in Inside Lewin Davis, they do lots of things with, like, dusty light. I think mm-hmm. that, that cinematographer is known for. And there's, there's there's so much dusty light in this film. I mean, it's, it's there's too much. I mean, It's irritating. I know it's supposed <laughs> to cause this kind of, you know, this feeling of being claustrophobic and it's mm. very like elusive but it just got on my nerves and you think you know Gary Oldman spent over 200 hours in makeup for this film you see half his face <laughs> he needn't have bothered you know I was on board I was on board for a split second there was this tracking shot across sort of central London which was kind of reminiscent of those really ambitious scenes from Atonement the big battle scenes and for a second I thought well this is going to be you know at least visually quite assertive and then he just retreats into the shadows for the rest of the film and um it's distracting. It reminds you of kind of those studio era films where they kind of blacked out the size to hide how cheaply it was made. And it's just, yeah, very distracting, very irritating and, and just completely reduce those big, beautiful speeches that he gives because, you know, he's kind of immersed in darkness. You can't see anyone reacting to the speeches mm-hmm. and it just completely, yeah, derailed it for me. Mm. For the first hour, I was never with it, but I was, I was always willing to sort of say, well, this could go either way. And then pretty much at the halfway point, it just tumbled for me, like it just, just died. There's a scene which we can't talk about, I guess, because it happens right near the end of the film. But we, I think we can allude to it, which is maybe one of the most idiotic. Oh, my God. <laughs> is, oh. it, is this the scene I'm thinking? It is, I mean, it, it's, it's just like I was watching it with my wife and, and we came after and we were just like, the first thing we said was, "That cannot be real." I mean, oh, that that that, that, se- that sequence. I mean, it's positioned at such a standout point in the the arc of the character. It's where he's at his lowest ebb, but he needs some inspiration, so he finds it. So it's so they really and they really go big in terms of hmm, yes, how to draw inspiration from the people. Let's say, yes. and um, it, I'd say it's one of the most embarrassing and cringeworthy scenes I've seen in a film in memory. I'd say it plays like a Saturday Night Live parody. It it, it really does. I mean, I guess one of the other issues of the film, in the review that we've run, not by me, by a colleague, Trevor Johnston, so he apparently went to the press screening of the film and Joe Wright was present at the screening to give an intro, which is kind of weird for a press screening because, you know, it's just a run-of-the-mill thing. 
And he was essentially there to explain that the film had been made or at least conceived and, you know, written pre-Brexit. Mm. And that although it may look like it now <laughs> as a kind of clarion call for like, you know, nationalism and rejection of Europe that actually that wasn't its intention. It was just intended as a kind of celebration of, of like British political oratory and, and a character study. But, you know, you know, going back to what you're saying about Three Billboards and Beth, about the idea of a film existing in a moment and having to kind of contend with, with reality and this question of whether films can exist in a bubble on their own mm, and, mm. and not be kind of affected by the kind of tide of politics or, or, or sort of um, social issues. And, and yeah, I mean, you, you watch this film and you, you do kind of think that the sort of UKIP massive are going <laughs> to gonna probably have have quite a nice time with it. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's not our job to engage with that kind of... And I'm trying really hard to disengage from the, the broader context in this instance because it's so close to home and because I have very, you know, strong views to one side. But people are either going to love or hate this film yeah. based on that and th- this moment in time that we are existing in. So. I, I really don't think it's a spoiler to, to mention this, but the second time I watched it, I sat through right to the very end of the credits and it ends with the bongs of Big Ben, oh. which seems like that's almost the Nick oh, Fury wow. coming out at the end of Iron Man <laughs> for Brexiters. In a way. So we'll, <laughs> I think yeah, the audience will love that. That's very funny. <laughs> So should we should we uh, put some numbers on this? Can I add oh, one yeah. more little thing because I think it's worth talking about and another sort of criticism of this film, which I think is very valid. That Lily James is in it, who is you know a big up and coming actress. She's had many sort of breakout roles. Yeah, Baby Driver, Baby Driver. She was in Cinderella. Cinderella, the, the zombie Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Should have directed that movie. And and I also can't remember a more thankless role than hers in this film where she plays Churchill's secretary. And um, there's no role beyond basically looking at Churchill in awe at what he does and from the sidelines. And... In awe or in, in a state of disrobement in a way as well. Yes. We, we didn't say that in the first half of the film it's very much a, almost a comedy of, of errors, of manners, of Churchill swearing and smoking bumbling. and bumbling around. The cat is under the bed and... Oh, <laughs> etc. And Lily, Lily James sort of is... Her role is kind of distressed onlooker for most yeah. of most of the mm-hmm. film and uh, and that kind of develops into like awed onlooker by the end it feels so token if you took that role out of the film well, the film would be like the, exactly mm. the same I, I feel mean. like she's supposed to be us isn't she we're supposed to be the onlookers we're supposed mm. to be the people coming into the especially a younger generation who don't well I'd say I don't really know Churchill that well but he's been that prominent in TV and film recently like John Lithgow in The Crown who mm-hmm. did a really great job to be honest right. um Kristen Scott Thomas didn't have that much to do other than, you know, bustle in and straighten his tie and give him a bit of a kick up the bum and then leave. You know? I think KS- KST was watching the film thinking, oh, I wish this had been about her character. Yes. You know, yeah. it, how, how interesting would that have been to have that story refracted through her view and her, her kind of feelings? It is fascinating, though, to see how many films can be made pretty much out of the same little span of time. This mm-hmm. is so The King's Speech as well. It's mm-hmm. a yeah, redone f- with a flip. So you have Ben Mendelsohn in this as as the king playing the role that Colin Firth won an Oscar for. And then you have Gary Oldman taking the reins of, you know, Timothy Spall had a cringeworthy cameo in King's Speech as Churchill. And it just feels like we're in this era of British prestige cinema where it's we can laugh a little bit the, the boorish oafishness or the trappings of the great men in our history, but also there needs to be the third act where they come through and inspire the people. And this is why one of my most anticipated films of this year is a film called Peterloo oh, yes. by Mike Lee, which is about a kind of famous historical event set in Manchester. And it's like, thank God that he's doing something that is actually like a, a sort of you know relatively unknown, little-known mm-hmm. episode in British history rather than like trawling over the same old ground, yeah. uh, you know. Well, we're excited for Peterloo, yes. but how do you feel about Darkest Hour? Beth, what numbers are you thinking? Two across the board. I've gone right off right uh, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of this. I quite enjoyed Atonement. I really liked the adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. I mean, I was a younger woman then, so perhaps if I revisited, my feelings would have changed. But yeah, not really on board with him. Didn't engage with the film whatsoever. Like, I just did not engage. I was not invested in the story at all. I mean, I like the film less because of what it's done for the awards season, but then that's not the fault of the film. That's the fault of the boards and who's in charge of making those decisions. But, um, yeah, just absolutely uninvested, unengaged, disengaged. Yeah, just twos all round. Twos all round. David? 
I kind of like Gary Oldman and, you know, probably my anticipation was a little bit higher, maybe three, just because it had, had, it had been a certain amount of buzz from, you know, festivals and whatnot. But yeah, while watching it, it's probably down to a two because I, I was with it for a certain amount of it, but then it kind of just lost me at a point. And then just one in, in mm. retrospect, it's just... You know, I'm not going back there. As you said, I quite respect Joe Wright's you know, director's vision and eye. The fact that he's being so overwrought, I'm trying to make that pun work, <laughs> uh, is quite in this time of Netflix TV where everything looks the same or Marvel films where they all look the same. I quite appreciate that. And I do like Gary Oldman. If you go back and think about the films in the late 80s and 90s, that run he had where it's Prick Up Your Ears, JFK, Leon, etc., True Romance, it's just incredible. So seeing him on screen in a in a role like this. I also love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was his last mm-hmm. big role. So it's probably a three or a four in, in anticipation. Enjoyment, yeah, it's, it doesn't look good there. It's a, a two, and it really doesn't stand up for a rewatch. So probably a, a two in retrospect as well. Well, that's the dark style, but there is some light coming our way. We're going to go back in time to the 1990s for Film Club for Fargo. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedland's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says, last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. He says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a... Little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. So, Film Club this week. It's uh, the mid-90s classic, the film that won Frances McDormand her first Oscar. We'll see later this year. The Midwestern dark crime comedy Fargo. Uh, very much a contender for 
the best Coen Brothers film in many people's uh, minds, I think. What do the listeners think? David, you got some tweets there? On that note, before we go into the tweets, I just want to say, one of the things that I think is great about the Coen Brothers is that everyone has a different favourite film. Of course. As much as uh, Fargo is a true story, that is a true statement. Um, <laughs> so what Dre V. Sanchez says, such a difficult question. Love all Coen Brothers movies. Today I would place this third after No Country for Old Men and The Big Lebowski. I know tomorrow it might be number one for me. Ranking always changes. So Lucy Nell Crater, one phenomenal performance. Script is awesome. The tragic comedy of it all, if that's a word. English is not my first language, <laughs> is what sticks for me. It's deadly serious. There's suspense, but it's also damn funny. I've not watched the series. I've been told it's awesome. I too have not watched the series. So. I've only watched one episode. Beth, have you seen the series? Is first it? series. First series is great. Yeah, I think Martin Freeman in that is flawless. Absolutely flawless. I forget he's British a lot of the time, and, and this was a good example of that. And have you got any tweets for us to share? Yeah, uh, Paul Felon. Still love Raising Arizona 2, one of those eternally quotable films. Martin Coleman says, I love this film. Macy is cracking. And uh, Joseph William Carr just says, number one, exclamation mark, which is um, to the point. Oh, yeah, Macy is cracking. He was sharing some trivia earlier about how he wasn't the first choice for that role. Yeah, Bill Pullman. That would have been a very I different film with Bill Pullman in, in the lead. I don't think I would have liked that half as much. But how does Fargo stand up on a rewatch, do you think, now, 20 years on? I think it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the Coens, but it's never been one of the films that I have would have ranked top, top, top of the pile. Mm. I think I'd probably prefer some of their more eccentric stuff. I mean, it's interesting the sort of timeline that the film arrived in because they'd had their early successes with Blood Simple, Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing. Mm. And then they were kind of, after that, given the keys to the kingdom to make Hudsucker Proxy, which cost loads and loads of money Mm. and tanked. And um, I don't know, it feels like a kind of response to that where they've made something that's very, very different into it's, it's very stripped back, simple very, very kind of starkly plotted and Mm. quite brutal in its outlook. And, you know, perhaps it's the film of theirs which kind of implanted this idea of them being kind of high cynics, Mm. of them having this kind of very, very dour, very uh, negative worldview that the world is essentially kind of predicated on on evil and wrongdoing and and everything is going to happen for the worst, which I think, you know, they came back to in a big way in a film like A Serious Man mm. later on. But um, one thing I find very strange about it is that McDormand, who won Best Actor, Best Actress, sorry, and um, she doesn't really come into the film for like, is it like 30 minutes, 45, 40 minutes? Oh, it's, I think it's shorter than that. It feels mm. like a, a while, but she comes in maybe 20 minutes, I'd 20 say. 20 minutes, okay. You spend a lot of time with Macy and then Buscemi and, and Stormare, don't you, to begin with. And they set up the crime before the cop comes in. It's interesting you mentioned that this was a response to Hudsucker Proxy because it does play now like almost an archetypal mid-90s film, this sort of, it's it's playing with genre, it's playing with a sense of America, very, you know, very kind of post-Tarantino-esque film in a way with Steve Buscemi and the, the Rat-a-Tat dialogue and so on. And when people talk about Coen's-esque as an adjective, they're probably thinking about this film. It's true. I mean, those early films were definitely like leeching off of classical Hollywood influences mm. and like hardboiled fiction and and this this feels like the first film where they've it, it's very much their own thing. I mean there's this whole kind of mythology behind the film that it cause it has this um subtitle at the beginning saying this is the story, the events the names have been changed out of respect for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they've gone to town on that that sort of declaration which has since been overturned and they themselves have said the only thing that's true about this film is that it's a story (laughs) (laughs) um, so I generally hate films that that say based on true events because you know if it's got human beings in it it's going to be there's going to be some element Mm -hmm. of truth in it (laughs) and that opening title card then inspired the film Kumiko the Treasure Hunter which came out a few years ago as a sort of small festival film with Rinko Kikuchi and did you see that film yeah 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 where she goes to search for Carl Shoalwater's Buried, buried money, yeah. Suitcase of money. In, <laughs> She's in a, a Japanese kind of uh, you know, treasure hunter. Treasure hunter slash dropout who sees a very grainy VHS copy of Fargo and from that is trying to figure out where it's buried and then 
it's it's actually a, 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 like a nervous breakdown movie, isn't it? Really, <laughs> but it's a very sad, strange, curious yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really worth. worth How did this stand up for you, Beth? I watched it just in the most perfect circumstances, in that I haven't seen it for years, so couldn't remember half as much about it as I thought I did, and then just came into it almost completely afresh. The tone is just so satisfyingly balanced, I think. Like, you've got just such a wonderful combination of humour and and this kind of darkness that you say is kind of transcends from their other earlier work. And then they've got Frances McDormand. And, I mean, just her performance in itself. There's something so interesting about her face. I realise how mm-hmm. basic that sounds. But just something where it's just... There's nothing but yet everything going on at the same time. And, you know, these conversations that she has. I, I especially like the scene where she's interviewing the uh, the sex workers and trying mm. to get a little bit of information out of them. I think that was quite new at the time as well. Just completely devoid of judgment. She's just open and receptive of, of the story. And really pregnant. <laughs> just super pregnant. But you don't... I love how that's kind of... That sort of adds this huge weight to the whole... I mean, literally, but also it adds this whole weight to every scene that she's in. And yet it's never really acknowledged. It's never really dealt upon. It's never seen to slow her down. Mm-hmm. It's never seen as like a critique of her character. It's just there and it's a part of her. Just adds this kind of wordless extra depth to the film which I think you you miss in so much storytelling now mm. I love that pregnancy element to the film especially after like a film like Raising Arizona which mm. is kind of about this uh, the, the kind of anxiety of childbirth Yeah, I love the idea that in Fargo you know she's the only kind of good character and <laughs> because of that she's the only one who gets to procreate <laughs> <laughs> I mean Norm's pretty great Norm's pretty yeah, not, harmless not, well not Norm is the husband so yeah. he's he's kind he's of also in there allowed. as well yeah. so um, <laughs> the sort of love story between Norm and Marge is, is in itself delightful I mean you know where he kind of gets up and makes her eggs insists that she ha- eats her eggs before she goes mm-hmm. it's just this kind of you know little kind of love is yeah, <laughs> you only ever see them either in bed or eating together. It's yeah. just such a cosy depiction of a relationship on screen. I think it's so fascinating to watch Fargo now in the same week as Three Billboards because there are echoes between them, but they're just the flip of each other. You know, Fargo is such has such a satisfying end and characters that you really do love and respond to even the wrong guns like William H. Macy's character. Ah, see, I, I didn't empathise with him whatsoever. I thought he was very silly and he got everything that was But he just digs it. himself deeper and deeper <laughs> into it. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you, but I think, idiot. <laughs> I think that's another Cohen-esque trait mm-hmm. is, the, is the kind of, the character who just is kind of reaching for something that, they, that they're never going to be able to grab. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, and, and a film like no Country for Old Men, I think, is about that. Just a person who's just thought, I'm going to grab for something and and it suffer the consequences for it. And, you know, he, he does that in this film. And, yeah, he does seem perfect in his kind of jittery nervousness. And I think the the scene where him and um, McDormand's interviewing him in his office and he's kind of getting more and more agitated and then eventually kind of drives off. I mean, it's 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 so, it's just perfect. It's a perfect visual gag where yeah. you just see him just yeah. pulling out of the driveway, out of the window. It's, <laughs> it's just terrific, isn't it? So you you, you teased that this wasn't your favourite and you, you prefer the more eccentric ones, but where would it come in your Cohen's list, David? I don't know. There, there are so many that I like. I mean, at the top of the table was probably something like interchangeable between something like The Man Who Wasn't There and Inside Lewin Davis mm. and uh, No Country for Old Men. I really like The Hudsucker Proxy as well, mm. <laughs> actually. I've actually got a lot of time for Intolerable Cruelty as well, oh. which I find really, really good, which was their first kind of, I guess, for hire job. I actually think Hail Caesar is wonderful as well. So, I mean, okay. a strange film in their canon. But, mm. um, <laughs> Beth? Revisiting this, this, this ranks pretty high. Um, for me, it's always been sort of interchangeable between Miller's Crossing and Inside Lewin Davis. Mm-hmm. Burn After Reading, I've reminded me, is, is a family favourite. That's a big, <laughs> a big hit with the webs. Not necessarily the best film, but definitely a lot of fun. George Clooney, I, I love in that film. But this one is, is just creeping up to the top spot after rewatching. Just, again, it's the McDormand factor. It just knocks out the park. And I'm a real sucker for that Minnesota nice... A real sucker for that aspect of the film, really. So it's really rare, I think, to see a Coen Brothers character who is so unequivocally nice, who isn't made to suffer. Right. I mean, like yeah. they, you know, you, you generally see the kind of you know the nice guys in their films. They're made to sort of suffer gruelingly. They're put through the ringer a little exactly, bit. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So obviously, she's in this kind of dark world where she's dealing with these 
horrible murders and these you know revolting people mm-hmm. who's you know for whom evil seems just depthless really but um yeah it's interesting on that front i think mm-hmm. well so that was fargo and uh looking ahead what do you have to look forward to next week then david so next week uh we're going to be looking at so we've got two pretty big new releases the new one from the beard and not you uh, <laughs> <laughs> um the other beard, Steven Spielberg, and his film The Post, mm-hmm. which is about the Washington Post Pentagon Papers scandal, which kind of links to the Vietnam War. And it's got two gigantic performances from uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks in it. We've also got uh, Lee Unkrich's Coco, which is the new Pixar film. I can't wait for that one. Um, set in and around the uh, Mexico's Day of the Dead mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a kind of fantasy based on that. And for Film Club is a film which... Have any of us seen this? I haven't seen it. Have you... um, no. I, I haven't seen this either, so I'm excited to maybe partake in the game next right. week. But uh, it's a movie called Absence of Malice, mm-hmm. a film about journalism. Sydney Pollock, early uh, Sydney, 80s. Yeah, Sydney yeah. Pollock film about journalism. And yeah, I can't say I know too much more about that, but it would be great on that note. I think we need your comments more than ever for this one. So <laughs> yeah. next week's Film Club, Absence of Malice, is going to be a real journey of discovery. Yeah, it's, it's quite a deep dive one for yes. Film Club. So please do send in your comments. That's truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or Twitter at LWLies. Anything else to talk about? Anything looking ahead, Beth? If I may plug. Oh, go uh, ahead. <laughs> uh, so I'm multi-platform editor over at Ranamax, which is Channel 4's short film strand. And we've got two new series coming up this year on Channel 4, which mm. is very exciting. And I am part of a film collective called the Bechdel Test Fest, which is a feminist film collective. And we've got a screening as part of the London Short Film Festival next week, which is a retrospective films by Matty Diop, who is an actress and director. Fantastic. If you're in the city, yeah. David, anything to look forward to from Little White Lies? Timing-wise, I mean, maybe by the time you've hit listened to this podcast, you'll see what our new issue is, ah. which we're launching imminently. But the name has been mentioned on the podcast today of, of our cover film, and it's I think it's one that is going to be beloved by many people and probably, you know, it's 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 part of the, uh, the awards talk at the moment. One of the big hitters, I think. So um, we've got that to look forward to. Oh, yeah, can't wait. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see about that, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Beth, and thank you, David, for joining me today. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Uh, This was, as always, a 7 Digital production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.